With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. One quick note before we get going. In this episode, we talk about tampons and menstruation, and we use the word women a lot to describe people who have periods and who companies like Tampex have targeted with their marketing. But it's important to note that it isn't just women who menstruate. Some people, like some transgender men and non-binary folks do, and then some women don't get periods at all. If you want to learn more about this, we've included a link in our episode notes. Okay, now let's start the show. A couple of months ago, I met up with my friend Julie Sadow for breakfast. I will say, we were at a cafe, and it was small little tables next to each other. Do you remember that? I do. Julie is an author and a journalist. And this cafe we were at, it was a cute French cafe. There were lots of people around, silverware clinking, delicious croissants, light chatter. You get the idea. Very normal, very quaint. But then I asked Julie a question. What stories are you working on? And I said, um... I'm thinking about doing something on tampons. (laughs) And uh, not your normal breakfast conversation? No, not at all. There were people sitting next to us. So, you know, there is a sense of like, oh, God, what they're talking about tampons at the table next to us. You know, it's not typical breakfast fare. (laughs) I'll be honest. Tampons and periods are not something I'm used to talking about. In fact, on the rare occasion it does come up, I feel like we're supposed to talk about it in code. Like, I had this coworker from years ago who, I kid you not, used to say stuff like, this weekend my Aunt Flo is visiting from Redlands. Like, how do you respond to that? How awkward is it for you as a woman to talk about it? Well, I just remember when I brought it up with you, you asked me what a tampon was. Was that the thing with the string? <laughs> <laughs> I got a little confused there. I wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't putting all the pieces together in my mind. We're having breakfast. It, it threw me. Well, you know what? I have to say, it was the first time that I have um, discussed this with a man aside from my husband, and I felt a little uncomfortable. And when you asked me if a tampon was the thing with the string, that's when I was like, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. Um, Because um, everyone else I had talked to about it was a woman. And... I realized, like, why would you know that? Because you have no need to use this whatsoever. Very little dealings with tampons. Yes, it was It was kind of a moment for me, to tell you the truth. It was kind of a moment for me, too, actually. Because the story Julie told me, yes, about tampons and where they came from, well, I can't believe no one's talking about it. From Business Insider, this is brought to you by... Brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Charlie Herman. I don't 
Tampax is the most used tampon brand in the United States today. But when it got its start back in the 1930s, it wasn't just unpopular, it was completely taboo. Today, the story of the woman who founded Tampax, the man who helped her make tampons mainstream, and the brands that shaped the menstruation conversation today. How do you advertise a product that no one wants to talk about? And what happens when corporations end up doing all the talking? Stay with us. So where does the story of Tampax start? So it really starts in the 1930s with this fascinating character, uh, Gertrude Tenderich. She was really amazing. Unfortunately, I wish that we knew more about her. Julie Sadow is an author and reporter who regularly contributes to The New York Times. For a while now, she's been doing research for a project about Tampax. She's pieced together the story using old company literature, newspaper clippings, immigration records, and documents from Gertrude's extended family. She was a German immigrant. She came to the country in the 1920s, and she was the wife of a baker. They had started a bakery in Denver. Within a few years, Gertrude's family bakery failed. She and her husband and their children were living in two small rooms behind the shuttered business. They scrapped together a living by working for extended family members, but this was not the American dream Gertrude had signed up for. Gertrude was, you know, a businesswoman at heart, and after the business failed, she really wanted to start something new. But she was a German immigrant, and English was not her native language, so the first thing she did was actually go to night school and learn English. And then she decided to start a diet pill business, in part because Gertrude herself was sort of large. The Yiddish word might be zoftig. Exactly. Perfect for her. She was a little zoftig. And so she actually used herself as the prime example of their success. She would go around to Denver housewives and she would say, look at me. This is a picture of me before taking the pills and this is a picture now. Wouldn't you like to look like me? And she also started a mail order business. But what happened was the government actually started cracking down on mail order businesses. So she decided she needed to look for a new product or some way to expand her business without that. While Gertrude carted her dyed pills around Denver and knocked on doors, another local resident had just secured a patent for a groundbreaking new product. The first commercially produced tampon had just been invented in Gertrude's hometown. So buying period products was an almost brand new concept. I mean, Kotex had been selling menstrual pads since around the end of World War I. But before that, most women just made their own pads. They made them out of rags or cloth, and they would often use like safety pins or belts to keep them on. But often these were definitely not uh, very user-friendly, I guess you could say. Um, the pins would poke you, the belts would slip, they weren't really very absorbent, the materials, they looked really bulky. So there were a lot of problems with them. In 1933, a Denver doctor named Earl Haas patented a design that would eventually change all that. With the help of his wife, a nurse, he created a feminine hygiene device modeled after a medical tampon. That's what the cotton plugs doctors used to dab up and stem bleeding were called. He basically came up with putting a string on it and a cardboard applicator, which is essentially the same object we have today, and he patented it, and that was really the start of the tampon. He called his new invention Tampax, short for tampon, the medical device, and pack, how it was used. But even though it was an ingenious design, and there was definitely a market for it, Dr. Haas's Tampax did not take off. 
he didn't have the same business acumen as he did inventor acumen, you could say. He had trouble selling the product. He enlisted someone he knew to try to get Johnson and Johnson to actually buy it. Uh, they passed. This was something that women put internally into their bodies. It was a really revolutionary concept, and he just was unable to sell it. Gertrude Tendrich heard about Dr. Haas and Tampax through a mutual friend. He thought Gertrude might be able to do something with Haas's floundering business. So she approached Dr. Haas to purchase his patent, and he wanted 32 grand, which in the 1930s was definitely not chump change. No, especially that's, I mean, you're in the middle of the Depression. Exactly. So she cobbled together several investors, and they managed to come up with the money, and they paid him. And the deal they struck was quite fascinating because Dr. Haas essentially gave them all rights to the patent with no royalties whatsoever. Do you have any idea how she was able to to do that? From what I can gather from the documents available, she was quite an ingenious woman. In this era in general, women were not business entrepreneurs, let alone a German immigrant whose English was a second language. She was a mother. You know, she's in Denver, Colorado, not New York City, sort of the center of commerce. It's a fascinating story. She clearly had a lot of gumption. At first, Gertrude made the tampons at home with a sewing machine and a hand-operated compressor Haas had designed. But with the help of her brother, who was a machinist, she figured out how to automate a lot of that process. Before long, the operation had moved into a Denver loft where the family churned out about 1,000 tampons an hour. So she immediately started trying to sell it. And she felt like this is a product, rightly, that women could really embrace. But there were quite a few stumbling blocks for her. Such as? I mean, the stigma that she faced trying to sell tampons, you know, obviously you have to talk about your vagina, you have to talk about bodily functions, and, you know, this idea that periods are gross. I mean, for centuries, women have tried to hide it or cover it or deal with it in private. So that's a really hard thing to fight against. Right, like how do you go around and talk about what the product actually is? Right, you can't exactly show them how it's used. (laughs) So you need to be able to explain it, you need to give instruction, you need to be able to talk about something that was very much not a topic for public consumption. And for Gertrude, that was really, really hard because there were so many constraints, like even on advertising, you know, she wasn't allowed to use any explicit language, words like menstruation or obviously vagina period. So how do you have an advertisement in the paper where you use none of the words explaining what the actual thing is about? So then how did she overcome that? How did she get people to know that this product existed? She did manage to get some advertising in the local newspapers, but she mostly walked around to the women as she had done previously with her diet pill business. She walked around and knocked on women's uh, houses on their, to, to the housewives in the different homes around Denver and told them about it. So you're saying she literally was like a door-to-door salesman for tampons? Yes, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to imagine what the sales pitch would be for that. I know. I think it was kind of a crazy approach. You also can't really scale up hugely that way. Gertrude also visited drugstores and tried to get pharmacists to buy her tampons. 
Some agreed to keep them behind the counter, but for the most part, they refused to sell them out in the open because they were worried about offending their customers. From what Julie's been able to uncover, we know Gertrude was getting frustrated. She told one of her business partners at the time, quote, I am a woman, and I know other women will want Tampax when they have tried it. But these men, the retailers, just look at me as if to say, this lady is mad. She also did talk to a lot of nurses, but I can only imagine too. I mean, it must have been, <laughs> she must have had a number of doors slammed in her face. On top of all of that, the Great Depression was proving to be a difficult time to start a business. And tampons especially were probably a hard sell. Because again, for centuries, women had been making their own. So you were also asking women to pay for a product that was always free and something that they would just create in their own home. It's amazing that she was able to do as well as she did considering all the challenges she faced. Within a few years, Gertrude's Tampax operation was running out of steam. The interest she'd been able to generate wasn't enough to keep the business going long term. So what did she do? She decided to take what money she had and she took a train to New York and checked into a fancy Manhattan hotel to put the word out that she had this company and she was looking for investors. After the break, Gertrude and Tampax take New York City and Julie Sadow's great-grandfather-in-law gets involved. Stay with us. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back. And there's something Julie and I haven't told you yet. What was it that got you interested in reporting on Tampax? Yeah, well, when I started dating my the man who now is my husband, um, pretty early on, he told me that his great-grandfather actually founded Tampax. So it was always a fascination with me. I know. Didn't Gertrude and that doctor in Colorado start Tampax? Well, yes. But the reason you've heard of it, the reason you can buy Tampax or any tampon in grocery store aisles these days, is thanks to a guy named Ellery Mann. That's Julie's husband's great-grandfather. Got that? And by the way, Julie's family connection to Tampax ended years ago. They don't have a financial stake in the company. Ellery, however, they still mine him for stories. He was this very gregarious figure. He loved to eat. He loved to gamble. He was an extremely dapper dresser. He was very, very charming. He was a ladies' man, supposedly. He had an affair with Edith Piaf okay. at one point. The French singer? Yes, the French singer. And he could really sell anything. If you believe family lore, 
Ellery once managed to talk his way out of Russia through the Iron Curtain with a bunch of vodka and without a passport. When his daughter got married, Ellery apparently bought her tickets to every single show on Broadway. And when he wasn't busy spinning tall tales, he worked as an advertising executive. He was kind of like a madman before Mad Men really had taken off. In the 30s, he worked for the precursor to McCann Erickson, the famous advertising firm. And he basically worked on a lot of female health products. Pharmaceuticals were his sort of his beat. In the early 30s, Ellery was doing well. He was making the modern equivalent of nearly $2 million. He had had a huge success marketing a feminine douche that was sold in drugstores. But in the mid-30s, after bouncing around between a couple of different projects, Ellery was out of work. So he's out looking for a job, he's looking for his next move, and he hears that there's a woman who's got this company and she's looking for investors. And, you know, douches and tampons, there's something there. They're not that different. That woman was Gertrude Tendrich. Now, the story of how she and Ellery Mann met gets a little foggy. One version is that they were both standing in line at a Manhattan bank when they ran into each other. There's another account of them being introduced by a mutual friend. But what we do know for sure is that at the time, Gertrude was camped out in a fancy hotel, the Palace on Madison Avenue. Shortly after they met, Gertrude and Ellery sat down to hammer out a deal. And it's really too bad that we don't know more about that meeting, because from what we do know about Ellery and Gertrude, it would have been fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean, I really would have loved to be a fly on the wall in that room. Gertrude was this, you know, amazing businesswoman. They used to say that she could actually read a business contract upside down from across the table. And considering she wasn't even a native English speaker, that's definitely a feat. And obviously, Ellery was this sort of madman, businessman, advertising guy, and legendary deal maker. So I'm sure the rapport between them was probably amazing. And so they ended up leaving the meeting with Ellery essentially being the owner of Tampax. So she sold it to him just like she had bought it from Dr. Haas. Yes, she does remain involved in the company and even her daughter remains on the board for many years afterwards. So they stay good friends and she stays involved. But she is no longer selling it like she was before. No, Ellery Mann is now the president. Why did he think that he could sell this product? Because it's a product that women want. I mean, he understood advertising. He understood how to appeal to people and get them to buy things. And this was the perfect product for him. It was something that women didn't even realize they wanted. Ellery knew the problem with Tampax was not that Gertrude couldn't sell it. The problem was that no one was talking about it. Her foothold in Denver, Colorado, wasn't strong enough to create any buzz. So almost immediately, Ellery started pushing advertising on the biggest scale he could. He had a lot of ideas for how he could fight the stigma that had been such a challenge for Gertrude. For instance, he was good friends with the guy who ran the American Medical Association. So he convinced him to let him advertise Tampax tampons in the American Medical Journals. Ellery put on every box of Tampax approved for advertising by the American Medical Association, which really just means <laughs> he advertised in the journals. But, um, you know, people skim over that and think it means that the American Medical Association approved of the product, which is not exactly true. Ellery worked to get pharmacies on board by persuading them to buy stock in his company. Walgreens, for example, bought Tampax shares and started displaying boxes next to its cash registers in stores. 
Meanwhile, Ellery sank $100,000 into a Tampax advertising campaign. So he put a lot of his advertising in the papers on Sundays when women would read it, especially when working women would sometimes have the time to sit there and, and read because they weren't working. He was targeting um, them because he knew that tampons obviously would make it easier for them to go to the office. He started targeting these niche groups like sports-minded girls or girls who were into fashion and would want to wear tighter dresses, let's say, because they wouldn't be as obvious. Education became a huge part of the marketing strategy. Ellery hired saleswomen to hawk tampons at nursing conferences. He told doctors to write in for samples and test how absorbent they were using a glass of water. Just like Gertrude had done, Ellery and Tampax employees were going door to door trying to teach people about their product. The difference was they weren't just in Denver anymore, they were nationwide. But despite all of Ellery's marketing tactics, his big budget and high-profile contacts, Tampax did not make a profit for three years. It really took time because he was fighting against so much stigma. So what changed to make more women start buying tampons? What really happened was World War II. That made a huge difference. There was a real need for women to enter the workforce. And all of a sudden, the country wanted women to be working. They wanted women out of the house. So the stigma and a lot of the fear about tampons were out of necessity, they were removed. It almost became like you were helping the war effort by wearing a tampon because you could spend your day in the factory, for instance, now, and you didn't have to run home and change your pad. The choice between the external pad and the tampon is a purely personal one. This video was produced by the U.S. War Department in 1945. It was screened for women working in the Army Service Forces, and among other things, it explained how to use a tampon, which, coming out of the culture of the 1930s, feels shockingly specific. The tampon fits into the vagina in this fashion. But a tampon will be uncomfortable and irritating if the vagina is small or the menstrual flow heavy. So once women start using these products during World War II, when the war comes to an end, what happens? What happened was after World War II, all the men came back from the war and they wanted their jobs back. So women were seated once more to the home front. Uh, you've got, you know, shows like Leave It to Beaver. I mean, the classic 1950s housewife. It's funny. What's funny? Well, whenever we cook inside, Mom always does the cooking. But whenever we cook outside... You always do it. How come? Well, it's sort of traditional, I guess. Uh, you know, they say a woman's place is in the home, and uh, I suppose as long as she's in the home, she might as well be in the kitchen. By the time Ellery died in 1956, tampons had been booted out of the national conversation again. So tampons were considered, you know, you'd have to touch yourself. Um, there were also issues of fear. What if you're a virgin? There were a lot of pressures in the 1950s for women. You know, is it going to break my hymen if I use a tampon? There was also a religious backlash. So all these things came into play. Gertrude had succeeded in getting tampons on the market. Ellery had made sure women knew they existed, but neither of them managed to put a lasting dent in the shame and stigma that kept women from walking into stores, buying tampons, and using them. So Tampax's new leaders knew they had to take the conversation one step further. They had to figure out how to educate and market tampons from inside the home, how to get women to start using their product, and then trust it enough that they'd recommend it to their daughters. So it was really in the 1950s when companies like Tampax started creating a very robust educational arm, and they started making these pamphlets for women and moms. 
How altruistic was that? Was that to provide information to women and their daughters, or was it about selling more products? I think it was about both. After the break, how tampon marketing ended up in schools, and why the conversation Tampax started was enough to get women to buy tampons, but not to erase the stigma. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back. Not to get really personal, but we're getting kind of personal here. I mean, how did you learn about your period? Yeah, I mean, I remember getting it for the first time and being really shocked and and not having a lot of um, knowledge really about what was happening. So, you know, I I went to my mom. And when you went to talk to your mom, did she have good information for you? Not really, no. Um, I think she was shocked Uh, was not expecting it, and, you know, felt out of her depth. She first learned about it because she woke up one morning uh, in her bedroom, her childhood bedroom, and there was a pamphlet by her bedside about menstruation and your period. And her mom, my grandmother, never really engaged in any conversation with her, never talked about it, and that was about all she knew. So I I don't think she had a lot of information to go on to even give it to me, even if she wanted to. Since the earliest days of Tampex, Gertrude Tindrich and Ellery Mann had been trying to fight this problem. They knew many women wouldn't buy tampons if they thought they were risque or if they didn't understand how they worked. And mothers wouldn't recommend them to their daughters if they were uncomfortable talking about menstruation and especially if they thought tampons promoted sexual behavior. So as early as the 1940s, Tampax established an educational department. It was dedicated to dispatching Tampax ladies, as they were called, around the country. They visited schools and colleges where they gave presentations about menstruation and sanitary protection. By the late 60s and 70s, these presentations had evolved to something closer to those embarrassing sex ed videos you might remember watching in elementary, middle, or even high school. Julie, do you remember how old you were when you had, uh, like, sex ed class? Um, this is, yeah, actually, I was in um, seventh grade. Seventh? Wow, I was in fifth. You were in fifth grade? I was in fifth grade. Miss Soloski, like crazy red curly hair and these big thick glasses. And I just, many of you probably remember something very similar. Your own Miss Soloski, who separated out the boys and the girls and sat you down to watch a video about puberty. And it doesn't matter if you saw it in 1997 or 1953, They usually start the same way. Some peppy music, a really corny skit. 
Growing up to be a woman. That's what Mrs. Hardesty says the video is called. I don't think I'll even go. Well, how are you going to find anything out there? And then a girl gets her period for the first time. Well, it was this afternoon when I was changing into my gym clothes, and I noticed a bit of blood on my panties and... And figures it all out thanks to her mom or a guidance counselor or a big sister who is, of course, totally prepared for it and excited about the conversation. Golly, at first I thought, well, I didn't know what to think. And then I remembered when we talked about menstru... Menstruation. Menstruation and stuff. But here's what's really remarkable about these videos. You may not have realized it at the time, but lots of them are actually funded and produced by feminine hygiene product manufacturers. There's nothing strange nor mysterious about menstruation. Like this one from 1946. It's an animated video made by Disney and Kimberly Clark, the company that owned Kotex. All life is built on cycles, and the menstrual cycle is one normal and natural part of nature's eternal plan for passing on the gift of life. This video was actually used in schools for over 35 years and was viewed by more than 105 million girls. And you can hear how hard Kotex is trying to normalize menstruation in that video. I mean, it gives a sort of childlike innocence to the whole thing. I mean, the music, the fact that it opens with a baby, it's completely removed from anything sexual. Over time, these videos became more obviously branded, like an Always Changing, Always Growing, made in 1997 by, you guessed it, Always Minstrel Pads. I had to go to the store all by myself. I didn't even know what I was doing. Let me see what you bought. And she goes to the drawer and she pulls out <laughs> nice, nice product shot of the always. Right, exactly. And she's even hold, the way she holds it, it shows her mom is sort of like a, a Vanna White. Like, look what I have. Always pads. I got these. These are just fine. I use them myself. They're cleaner and drier. Once I realized how thin they were, I was afraid they wouldn't be enough. I know what you mean. But these ultra-thin maxi pads are just as absorbent as regular maxi pads without the padding. And check this out. Just to reiterate, this is not an advertisement. It's an educational video produced for classrooms. But it's also doing a really important job for the company that paid for it. In addition to putting their product front and center, it's dispelling rumors kids might have heard about it. It's also clearing up any misconceptions that might have kept them from using it. Here's one from Tampex, circa 1991. You can use tampons. It doesn't hurt you in any way. A, you cannot lose your virginity by putting in a tampon. The only way you can lose your virginity is by having sex. That's the only way. B, you won't, it won't get lost. You know, they're really answering a lot of the anxieties that kids will have. Companies like Tampax hired women's health experts to develop the videos and pamphlets they sent to schools. And if you ask historians who've studied them, they'll tell you this pushed the conversation in the right direction over the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Laura Friedenfelds, for example, is a writer who's written this really great book about menstruation in the 20th century. And one of the things that she says is that working with big companies like Tampax, for instance, was actually a really great opportunity for educators who'd been trying to find a way into the discussion to actually start talking about this topic. They definitely thought that what they were doing was try to educate girls and that basically one way to do that, to get the resources, the money to do it and to get the stuff produced and to be able to distribute it this way was to ride along with the menstrual product manufacturers. The 
company's efforts to really bring this material into the schools, it helped battle the stigma, it helped create conversations, a space for conversations, and in an unusual way that may have opened up opportunities um, for the conversation to get removed from the corporate sphere. What happened in the 1970s was a feminist health movement that followed along on the feminist movement that was really powerful. Our Bodies Ourselves was published, advocating that women be their own advocates for their health care and understand their bodies and not necessarily defer to their doctors for how they should think about their bodies. And those feminist conversations wound up in a more robust alternative literature around menstruation, so nice pamphlets that got produced that mothers could buy separately from bookstores or order and share with their daughters. And these are not affiliated with big brand names. That's right. They weren't. And they were able to talk about things like sex and sexuality, things that the big corporations were really steering away from. But on the flip side, for a lot of school systems and a lot of parents and teachers, that sort of material wasn't nearly as appealing as what companies like Tampax were offering for free. It was the cost of having a mass product with mass education. So you could potentially write a much more revolutionary, progressive curriculum, but then it would be adopted only by a small group of revolutionary, progressive people. Procter & Gamble, which now owns both Tampax and Always, still produces lightly branded educational videos and pamphlets for schools. A spokesperson for the company told us the program is request-based, so schools and parents have to reach out to them. And education, not brand loyalty, is their top priority. Tampax also partners with other physician-owned initiatives. Julie, how do you think the conversations that do happen about menstruation, about periods, that they've really been shaped by the companies that were pushing these Uh, videos in schools. I think there's a few ways that it's clear how they shape the conversation. The first is that Obviously, they have an incentive to push their own products. It's probably no coincidence, for example, that most people use tampons and pads, which were the products that they are touting in these videos that they produced. And it's also possible that companies did a worse job teaching kids about the risks involved with their products than a more objective source would have done. And what were those risks? So, I mean, take toxic shock syndrome, for instance. In the um, late 1970s and early 1980s, women died from wearing these super absorbent tampons that they started putting out in the market. They were made from these synthetic materials and women could wear them for extremely long stretches. And some combination of the, uh, you know, materials in them and the fact that they were wearing them for so long caused bacterial infection. And, you know, the companies themselves uh, weren't really necessarily educating women about them and hadn't even done enough research on their own products to even realize that these risks were inherent in them. When we reached out to Procter & Gamble about this, the response we got back was that until 1978, toxic shock syndrome was not recognized as a disease, and it took two more years for it to be linked to tampons. By the way, even to this day, we still don't know exactly what causes it. Even as companies like Tampax push the boundaries of our menstruation conversations, from the really abstract and flowery language of the Disney cartoon to the frank discussions in the Tampax video, there's still a layer of stigma. With the tampon, I can swim. 
And I, I like feel better doing sports because it's you feel you don't have a diaper. <laughs> in some videos, the pads or tampons are hidden in a dresser drawer. One of our producers remembers watching one in the fifth grade where a girl drops a gigantic bag of pads right in front of her crush. It's so embarrassing. And even though we are talking about it more, your period is still something you don't want anyone to know is happening. And unlike a pad, there's no possibility of odor. Nothing is visible. Nothing gets in your way. And there are none of the lumps and bulges of pads. I think tampon manufacturers always had to walk this interesting line between trying to fight the stigma about using tampons and about menstruation in order to get the word out about their product, but also operating within the confines of that stigma. I mean, even today, it's a selling point for tampons if they're small and they're covered in wrapping that does not say tampon on them. And everyone I know who walks through the office with a tampon uh, to the bathroom puts it in their sleeve. There's a great Saturday Night Live skit about this. It was made just a year ago, and you see a couple of women sitting in a college lecture hall. Do you have a, you know, a tampon? Oh, heck yeah. No, not here. Someone will see. Relax. One of the women passes her friend what looks like a dead mouse, or in another scene, a piece of fake poop. There's a tampon in here. Yep, but they won't know. They'll just see the poop. Introducing Tampax Secrets, the only tampon hidden inside other things you'd rather take out of your bag in public. Hey. I mean, how do you feel about the menstruation conversation that we have inherited from Tampax? I mean, it's complicated. On the one hand, I'm grateful for companies like Tampax for creating these videos and opening the conversation. Um, But it's also a sad commentary. That we have to rely on a brand to do this. Yes, and that they have their own agenda, which isn't necessarily, you know, altruistic. Um, And so I think it's complicated. But I think women want to have these conversations more. And I think young girls want to have them more. And I think we need to take ownership of the conversation away from the corporations and make them ours. This has started to happen. Period activists around the world are working to make menstruation something we're not afraid to talk about. And I do mean we, all of us. Because if there's one thing I've learned working on this story and listening to Julie and my coworkers talk about the subject, there's a lot more all of us can do to be more comfortable with these kinds of conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the whole point of this, right? Like, we want to talk about it to make it less uncomfortable, but it's still really uncomfortable to talk about. It does feel, though, that the conversation has shifted and changed, especially if you go back to the 60s and 70s and look at the way we talk about it now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, like, so important to recognize that, I mean, there's a lot of effort to destigmatize women's bodies and uh, menstruation. I think there's a lot of recognition that not all women menstruate and not all menstruators are women, you know? There's also this issue of marginalized communities, for instance, who don't have access to menstrual products. In a lot of states, tampons are taxed like luxury goods, not necessities. They aren't available for free in public schools, even if the sex ed videos that sell them are. These are real issues of access that we can't even get close to touching if we can't feel comfortable talking about tampons in the first place. That change has already happened, and it's happening, but I think obviously there's still more to go. I mean, the fact that you and I were uncomfortable having the conversation at the very beginning when I first introduced this topic shows (laughs) that it's still not like a completely accepted breakfast subject matter, right? (laughs) 
it's interesting, like, you know, I'm do doing this whole episode with you, but I don't really want to necessarily be known as, like, the period person, you know, that's not... <laughs> but I think the conversation's so important. Like, the more we talk about it, the more comfortable we're all going to get, right? Julie Sadow is the author of The Plaza, The Secret Life of America's Most Famous Hotel. And she's working on a new project about the history of Tampax. Julie, thank you. Thank you. You know what? Who would have thought of breakfast uh, talking about... Uh, it probably was one of the more interesting breakfast conversations I have had. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. This episode was produced by Sarah Wyman and Julia Press, with reporting from Julie Sadow. And did you watch a super corny sex ed video when you were in grade school? Drop a link in our Facebook group. We could all use a, a good laugh and maybe some education. Just search Brought to You By Podcast. Our producer, Sarah Wyman, is still trying to dig up the one she watched in the fifth grade. There's apparently a very weird scene involving pancake batter and a detailed explanation of female reproductive organs. Did anyone see that one? Shoot us an email if you have any leads. btyb at insider.com. Special thanks this week to Shara Vostrel and Claire Banderas. Our editor is Michaela Bly, and Bill Moss is our sound designer. Music is from Audio Network. John Delore and Casey Holford composed our theme. Dan Bobkoff is the podfather, and Sarah Wyman is our showrunner. Brought to you by is a production of Insider Audio. Insider Audio.